Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 20. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about two of Bach's well-known French suites for keyboard. This is not, of course, the only collection of suite movements for keyboard instruments. There are also the so-called English suites, which actually predate the French suites, and the partitas, which are a group of suites in all but name. But names have always been a bit of a problem for these different collections of keyboard suites. There's very little reason to tab the English suites as English, other than the fact that they may or may not have been commissioned by an Englishman. In fact, commentators never seem to tire of pointing out that the so-called English suites may be somewhat more French-sounding than the so-called French suites, since they appear to make more use of the sort of cross-rhythm or hemiola effects more generally associated with the French style at that point. Adding to the confusion is the fact that the partitas were once referred to as the German suites. But they are all French in their basic essence, with the French versions of the various dances dominating, and the approach to ornamentation clearly influenced by French keyboard music of the period. We're only going to look at two of the French suites today, the suite number one in D minor and the suite number five in G major, but they are all worthy of attention, and we'll come back to some of them in some future episode. Earlier versions of these suites were composed by Sebastian for inclusion in the album put together by Anna Magdalena, his new wife. As such, they must be considered to be at least in part instructional, like so much of the composer's keyboard music. But they are also beguiling works, different suites in different ways, of course, and were clearly meant to charm Anna Magdalena. For suite number one, the opening movement is in Aleman, which is standard operating procedure for suites which do not begin with a prelude, and none of the French suites do. The Allemande, as you may remember from previous episodes, is a moderate duple meter dance that begins with a short upbeat and frequently features brief running figures that pass through the various voices of the texture. Typical of such dances, the piece is divided into two repeated sections. We'll begin by hearing the first section, 12 measures long. The melodic idea that opens the movement is a strong and reasonably distinctive one. It begins in what we'll call the alto voice because a response to the opening phrase comes in above it in what we'll call the soprano voice almost immediately. Its prevailing motion is descending. It starts after a pickup note on tonic with a forceful descending leap of a fourth and then meanders slightly before plunging down the remainder of the D minor scale to land on the leading tone below. 
This idea is distinctive enough that one might readily expect it to dominate the first section of the movement. And it does recur, at least the second half of it does, in a similar context and with equally dramatic effect in measure 10, first in the right hand, in the top part, which we've been referring to as the soprano line, and then is echoed immediately thereafter in the left-hand bass part. Nevertheless, it's hard to say that this melodic gesture dominates the first section of the movement, at least not in its original form. There is a motive derived from or fragmented from the initial idea that could be said to dominate, however, and that idea consists of the second through fifth notes of the original idea. In other words, it leaves out the dramatic descending forth at the beginning and the equally dramatic descending run at the end. So, at first glance, it seems to eliminate the most interesting aspects of the opening theme. So what does this truncated or fragmented version sound like? Here's an example which shows the original theme, the first bar of it, which we've been focusing on, followed by the fragmented motive as it appears again and again, nine times in all, mostly in the so-called alto voice, although once in the soprano voice as well. Please note my example does not enfold in real time. This fragmented motive is not found in measures 6, 9, 10, or 12, the last of which is the cadential measure bringing the first section to a close on the dominant. But my example does show the rhythmic placement of the fragmented motive in each measure. In every case but one, it begins on the second, 16th note of the beat. You'll also notice that the intervals for this figure are not exactly the same each time, because they're adjusted for the prevailing harmony and the degree of the scale on which they begin. Okay, now let's listen to a performance of the first section again with that fragmented motive in our ear. By the way, I mentioned earlier that the fragmented motive doesn't occur in measure 10, but what does occur in measure 10, first in the right hand and immediately thereafter starting a half step higher in the left hand, is a different, less fragmented version of the original idea, one that leaves out the descending fourth at the beginning but does continue with the descending scale line going all the way down to the leading tone. So if you add these two somewhat more intact versions of the original thematic idea, there are actually 11 appearances of a motive that is drawn from the original idea without actually duplicating it.
So this fragmented motive, which serves to integrate and unify the first section of the Alamand more than any other, is not exactly hidden. It's in plain sight and certainly noticeable enough once you start listening for it. Still, it's a great example of Bach choosing to assure the coherence of a piece by focusing not on the most obvious thematic material, in this case the idea presented in the first bar of the movement, but only some portion or fragment of that original thematic material. The second section of these binary form dances is frequently more elaborate with an increased density of texture, but usually makes reference to at least some of the same thematic ideas as the first section. And that's the case again here. It opens with a motive that is clearly related to the one which opens the first section. Here's an example that shows the two ideas one after the other. Since the second section begins in the key of the dominant, A major, the second figure begins on a different note. Also, after the sixteenth note upbeat, the second section version of the motive begins by leaping up a fourth rather than down a fourth. But other than that, there are some distinctive similarities between the two motives, which both end up on the leading tone, C-sharp, after a descent down the scale. The context is different, of course. The left-hand bass line is quite a bit busier as we begin the second section, and there's more tension inherent in the line simply because it sits within a dominant seventh chord, which seems to demand an urgent resolution. But the figure itself is fairly persistent, at least in the opening measures of the second section, where motives similar to it recur a couple of times. But other motives recur as well, including one heard in measure 9 of the first section. In terms of tonal centers, the second section is roughly comparable to the first. Although it begins on the dominant, it reverts to the tonic on D minor by the second bar, after which it touches briefly on B-flat major and then G minor on the way to F major, sometimes even using the same motives to affect the modulation. But of course, in this movement and elsewhere in these sweet movements, it's not just about how cleverly Bach can exploit a handful of motives to produce unity within a remarkable sense of variety. It's also about the harmonic interplay of the contrapuntal voices, the way expressive dissonances, ones which appear and then disintegrate in a fraction of a second, can at times provide a great sense of poignance and even a sense of emotional urgency. Here's the second section of the Alamand. The second movement is a courant, 
in 3-2 meter and taken at a moderate tempo. These movements are frequently notable for taking running figures, although the running is usually at a sedate pace in these French-styled versions, and passing them through the texture. As in the previous movement, that texture is primarily three-part counterpoint, two parts in the right hand and one in the left hand, but is occasionally bolstered to four parts, particularly around cadences. The first two measures of the first section not unexpectedly introduce much of the central melodic material. The main theme enters in the soprano line, supported harmonically by an arpeggiated D minor chord in the left hand, and by B3, the alto line steps in to provide contrapuntal support before the first cadence on D minor. Here's a simplified version of the first two bars without the ornamentation, in which you'll hear the left hand pick up the right hand's opening melodic idea and repeat it down an octave. There are a number of things about this two-measure melody worth pointing out. After the typical pickup note on the fifth scale degree, the A, Bach repeats the note on the downbeat and then begins to move down the scale, employing an undulating descending figure with a prominent lower neighbor tone. Having arrived at the D, he leaps up a dramatic ascending minor sixth and sustains it before falling back a half-step to the A, the dominant note again. He then leaps up a perfect fourth and circles around it briefly before descending a half-step to a C-sharp, which signals the first dominant chord. So there are some fairly distinctive elements to Bach's opening thematic statement. A little more difficult to hear is Bach's nuanced use of dissonance. My examples, my constructed ones, and the actual performance examples alike make use of a piano rather than a harpsichord for these suites. I think it's always permissible to do this and at times provides great advantages, simply because the piano tone will generally out-sustain the harpsichord tone. For example, in the first measure, we are given in the left hand a sustained D, which is tied into the next measure. That sustained D is somewhat difficult to hear in the second measure, even when the instrument used is a piano, and it's extremely unlikely that you'll hear it, although I suppose you could sense its presence, when a harpsichord is used. Perhaps more importantly, the left hand also sustains an A in the first measure for a beat and a half, and it creates a very expressive dissonance against the B-flat in the right hand when the melody leaps dramatically up a minor sixth, as I described earlier. You can hear that dissonance in the performance I'm going to play in a minute, but I'm not sure you could hear it nearly as well played by a harpsichord, since the tone that creates the dissonance decays more rapidly. Still, I don't want to be unfair to harpsichordists out there. The amount of sustain for any note will vary from instrument to instrument and even in connection with the recording techniques used. And there is certainly something to be said for the transparency of texture and lightness of touch which the harpsichord can provide in the negotiation of the delicate French ornaments which abound in these works. But back to the first section of the Quran. The thematic idea we've been focusing on is not the only motive of significance in this section but it is the dominant one, appearing in various versions seven times in both right-hand and left-hand parts in the ten-measure first section. Here is an actual performance.
The second section, which as usual begins on the dominant, is a bit longer at 14 bars. Right away it presents us in the right hand with a familiar thematic idea in a new guise, the inversion of the theme which began the first section. Here's what it sounds like in a simplified version. It's not an exact inversion, of course. For one thing, it's being inserted into a dominant seventh chord rather than a tonic chord, as it was in the opening bar of the first section. So, for example, the dramatic leap of an ascending minor sixth in the original version of the theme has been replaced by a descending leap of a major sixth, one which lands on a trilled note, although not in my simplified example. But, as in the opening section of the Quran, the theme presented in the right hand is, in the next measure, imitated by the left hand, although this time a fifth lower, because by this time the harmony has moved back to the tonic D minor chord. Does this new inverted version of the original theme dominate the second section of the movement as much as the original version dominated the first section? Not quite to the same degree, perhaps, but it plays an important role nevertheless. The inverted theme is heard again in the third measure a step lower as we move away from the key of D minor toward G minor, just as in the first section. And fragments of the original version of the theme, especially the dramatic ascending leaps, are built into a number of new sequential ideas, including some distinctive new rhythmic patterns that are introduced halfway through the second section. Here's a performance of the first part of the second section of the movement. As is typically the case, the next movement is a sarabande in 3-4 time, usually taken somewhat slower than the first two movements. The texture is somewhat more homophonic, although four linear parts are generally the norm here. Let's hear the first four bars of the opening theme in a simplified version, eliminating the usually abundant ornamentation. A couple of things about this opening theme catch the ear right away. Rhythmically, Bach makes a bit of an alteration to the most typical sarabande patterns by employing a rhythm of two-eighths on the downbeat, followed by a half note on beats two and three. He does this three times. The second is a sequential repetition of the first, and each time the figure is reinforced in the left hand. The other highly notable attribute is the use of large leaps within the predominantly stepwise flow. From the last note of the first bar to the first of the second, he leaps down a fifth, and then, in the middle of the third bar and on a weak beat, he makes a large, major sixth, unexpected ascending leap, and then immediately jumps down from it. The second four bars of the theme are a bit more conventional, exploiting a sequentially repeated scale pattern in bars five and six, and an arpeggio-based lead-up to the half-cadence on dominant. 
Here's a performance of the first section, eight measures long. Now that we've heard the harmonic context for the opening theme, it's clear that non-harmonic tones of various sorts, some of them rather dissonant, also play a large role in determining the movement's personality. One particularly telling example comes in the last two bars of the section. Just before we cadence on the dominant, we hear two rather exotic dissonances in a row, the first on the last beat of the seventh measure and the second on the downbeat of the eighth. The second section of the Sarabande has a somewhat different relationship to the first than in the first two movements in the suite. Instead of merely incorporating elements of the first section thematic material along with some new motives, this second section largely replicates the thematic material of the first, mostly in the left-hand bass clef part, albeit in a different harmonic context. For the first eight bars of the second section, Bach repeats much of the theme note for note, although wrestled into a new harmonic progression starting on the dominant and with a new contrapuntal accompaniment. It's repeated again for the last eight bars, back up in the right-hand treble clef part, but beginning a fifth higher, and once again largely reharmonized. Here, the partially chromatic descending bass line, which also played a part in the first section, makes a particularly powerful impact, and Bach's pervasive use of non-harmonic tones again contributes to the emotionally nuanced mood of the movement. The next two movements are minuets, not part of the classic four-dance sequence for the typical 18th century suite, but as you'll recall from previous episodes, a favorite of Bach's. As usual, the second minuet serves as something of a trio to the first, and the first is repeated after the second concludes. We would expect the minuets to be somewhat simpler in texture than the previous movements, and they are, but they're not without interest. The first minuet is the shortest, the first section is eight bars long, and the second twice that length. The opening four bars of the first section introduce two melodic ideas simultaneously, both in the right hand. The top layer is mostly arpeggio-based, but dives down at one point to a lower neighbor figure, probably its most distinctive element. After a couple of bars, this idea tapers off somewhat into slower-moving note values. The lower level, the alto if you will, begins rather blandly, moving upwards by step in quarter notes before beginning an undulating descent based on a string of eighth notes. Here's a simplified example showing both ideas. 
The second half of the first minuet, 16 bars in length, and back in the tonic of D minor, begins by taking those two thematic ideas and switching them around. The original alto-level melody is now on top in the right-hand part, and the original soprano level, that mostly arpeggio-based figure with a leap to a lower neighbor tone, that can now be found in the bass. Bach carries this second idea into the fifth and sixth measures, developing it sequentially. New motives are also soon introduced, one in particular in the right hand, which features a bold ascending leap of a seventh, which is repeated sequentially. But as we move toward the final cadence of the minuet, the two original motives are referenced a final time, albeit in a new harmonic context. We'll hear the repeat of the first section going into the second section. The performer has added a few embellishments on the repeat of the first section, which is typical for this style. The first section of the second minuet is at 16 bars, twice as long as the first section for minuet number one. It focuses the main melodic activity in the right hand, initially in the top or soprano part, but later passes it to the lower part. The melody unfolds primarily in two measure segments. The first measure, which we'll call mode of one, generally more static in terms of motion, moves more slowly in quarters and dotted quarters, although the trills on the second beat of these measures gives the sense of greater rhythmic activity. The next measure moves in undulating eighth note patterns. We'll call it motive two. Here's a simplified example of the first four bars showing motive one without ornamentation going to motive two. Tonally, this minuet is as conservative as the first minuet, never straying far from D minor. Still, considering that the minuet is generally a lighter movement, there are some interesting harmonic touches, including some long, sustained dissonances. Again, this is the sort of thing that is more apparent when a longer, sustaining instrument is used for the performance. Here's the first section, ending not on the dominant, but on the original tonic of D minor. The second section, at 24 bars, can almost be considered expansive, relatively speaking, but, not surprisingly, uses much of the same melodic material as the first section. Motive 2, that undulating eighth note pattern, which previously alternated with motive 1, the slower-moving, more static idea, now serves as a counterpoint to motive 1 for the first six bars, as that motive is repeated again and again, building cleverly to a climax. Thereafter, we return to the alternation of motives 1 and 2, as we heard in the first section, and that carries us through to the end of the second section. At that point, most performances repeat the first minuet. Here is the second section of the second minuet. 
The last movement is a gigue, but it's a very unusual gigue. Bach wrote a number of gigues, some of which you may recall from previous episodes, but the vast majority were in triple meter or in compound meter with a unit of pulse divisible by three. But that's not the case here. The meter signature is common time or 4-4. Four four. A few people have suggested that the time signature in this case is just a little eccentric, and Bach surely intended the movement to be performed with a triplet feel, since so many other jigs are performed in that way in the late Baroque. But duple jigs do exist, other than Bach's, mostly written a bit earlier in the Middle Baroque, by composers with whom Bach was very familiar. So it's likely that this duple time signature is something of a throwback to that earlier style of jig, and Bach means exactly what he seems to mean. That is, the note values should be taken literally and performed in a duple manner. And the rhythmic figures Bach employs here, including a frequent use of dotted eighths and sixteenths paired together, seems to suggest a very specific sort of duple style, a French overture style. The performance we're going to hear of this movement takes this nod to the French overture quite literally and performs the frequent dotted eighth-sixteenth combinations in a manner often associated with the French overture style of the Middle Baroque by making the dotted eighth quite short and holding off the sixteenth note until the very last instant. Rather, the opposite of the triplet-oriented interpretation of dotted eighths and sixteenths, which would interpret the dotted eighth as taking the first two-thirds of a triplet and the sixteenth note, the last third. The theme, which bears something of a resemblance to the opening Allemand theme which began the suite, is notable for its opening leaps, typical for a gigue melody, followed by a rapid descent down the scale. Here's a simplified version of the first five measures. My example included only the first three entrances of the fugue subject, but there are actually seven unique entrances in the twelve bars that make up the first section. You may have noticed that the most distinctive countersubject is also characterized by large leaps as well, and even when the fugal imitation has run its course, large leaps and rhythmic elements from the fugal subject continue to abound. Here's the first twelve-bar section without the repeat. The second section, a bit longer at 16 bars, begins in a typical way by presenting the opening subject in inverted form. This new version of the subject has a different tail, the little tag after the subject proper has ended, and a new countersubject, although one still tied to the inverted subject. New motives, although usually related to the subject in some way, are introduced in the brief episodic passages that follow. But once again, there are multiple imitative entrances, including one using the original form of the subject, almost to the end of the section. Bach's conclusion to the movement is particularly clever. He often introduces chromatic activity in the measures right before the final cadence. 
but for this movement, in the very last measure, he flirts briefly with tonicizing G minor and then ends with a Picardy third on a D major chord to finish off the entire suite. This is certainly not the most orthodox of Bach's jigs, but a lively and compelling one that rounds off the D minor suite with a flourish. Here is the final section. Number five in G major is a work of equal attractiveness, albeit in a very different way. It has the standard four movements associated with suites of this sort, but includes also a gavotte, a bourree, and a lura, the most unusual of the added dances. But we'll start, as usual, with the opening allemande. It features one of Bach's most attractive major key melodies in all of his suites. Beginning with a pickup note B, the third of the scale, it reiterates the B and then rises gently up the scale, paralleled by the bass a tenth below, and embroidered by a faster-moving alto voice. The basic motion continues to be stepwise, flowing up to E and then gradually back down the scale, although the figuration and decorative scale patterns that Bach surrounds the melody with gives an initial feeling of greater complication. Here is a much simplified outline of the basic stepwise melody with a simplified version of the accompanying left-hand bass part. Even in my very simplified example, you'll hear that by the third bar, we've temporarily tonicized D major, the dominant chord. Even my example has a naive charm about it, but when Bach's embroidering additions are made, the result is truly exquisite. Here are the first eight measures in an actual performance. As you can hear in my example, Bach goes back to the tonic chord in measure 4 and once again begins that lovely ascent up the scale, this time from G. But he breaks off fairly quickly and repeats the measure up a sixth, setting the stage for a tonicization of E minor, which is just a brief stop on his road back to the dominant chord. He soon sets up another descending line, embedded again within a figuration pattern that keeps returning to the fifth of the chord, the sort of pattern we've heard many times before. By measure 8, we've established another cadence on the dominant, and we half expect the first section of the allemande to end at that point. But Bach is not quite through developing his initial idea. In the last four measures of the section, 
Bach, back on the tonic chord once again, takes his initial ascending idea, but this time reverses it. He now descends from the B natural, accompanied again by a repeated figuration pattern, this time in the left hand. But the pattern does not take us where we expect it will, or at least not right away. Bach follows the pattern to D minor, rather than the D major dominant, and for a good measure and a half, we take this new key seriously, until, at the last moment, an F-sharp appears, and we end the section on D major. Here are the last four measures of the first section. The second section of the Aleman, which starts on the dominant, is also quite interesting. It makes some references back to the opening theme in the first section, but relies a bit more on new figuration patterns. It carries with it a strong sense of momentum, though, due to its many sequences and some striking chromatic motion. And, like the first section, it makes an unexpected, well, maybe not quite so unexpected this time around, visit to the minor subdominant chord, C minor this time, before settling into a final cadence on G minor. The next movement is again labeled a courant, this time in 3-4 rather than 3-2. It begins after the standard pickup note, with an attention-getting plunge down the G major scale in 16th notes, after an opening G major chord in the right hand. This is followed by a more leisurely ascending arpeggiation in 8th notes up the G major chord. This idea is picked up quickly by the left hand in the second measure, which, after a brief lead-in, imitates the right hand's opening two bars down an octave. As the section proceeds, the descending 16th note pattern continues to play an important role, sometimes working its way into one of Bach's familiar figuration patterns, with some continuing bits of imitation and sequential repetition exchanged between right and left hands. The preponderance of running 16th note passages passed off from one voice to another suggests a fairly quick tempo here, and has understandably led some commentators to make the point that, in essence, this is, like some other movements labeled courant in this group of six suites, more like an Italian version of the courant, in other words, a corrente, even though not labeled as such. There's not much harmonic novelty here. Bach is staying pretty close to home, tonally speaking, except for the conventional move to D major at the end of the section but the constant 16th note activity in one voice or the other keeps things lively throughout the first section. The second section, also 16 bars long, continues to exploit the descending scale line prominent in the first section, but introduces some new ideas as well, the most notable of which is the repeated dactylic pattern of an eighth followed by two sixteenths, which, repeated sequentially, provides a fair amount of rhythmic energy. Of course, the first section of the Courant had employed the same pattern, an eighth followed by two sixteenths, at the beginning of the descending scale line that began the movement. So, as is so often the case, you could argue 
that this new rhythmic figure is not really new. But its use in the second section, especially where it's doubled up and not at the beginning of a descending or ascending flow of eighth notes, still makes a fresh impression. But by the time we get to the middle of the second section, we return to the patterns familiar from the first section, and as in the first section, Bach disdains any harmonic or tonal novelty, driving smoothly and rather predictably toward the final cadence in G major. Here's a performance of the second section of the Quran. The Sarabande, which follows in a slower 3-4 time, presents another delicate and lovely, even poignant melody, similar in some ways to the theme of Bach's Goldberg variations and somewhat comparable to the Alamand, but with a more exposed and sensitive texture. The melody of the first 16-bar section, heavily embellished by ornamentation, begins again on B, the third scale degree, and relies heavily on a distinctive rhythmic figure consisting of a dotted quarter followed by an eighth note, leading to a dotted eighth and a sixteenth. This characteristic rhythmic pattern dominates the first eight measures, where it occurs four times, usually in alternating measures. Here's a much simplified version, leaving out the extensive ornamentation of the first four bars. The next four bars reveal a generally descending line, although shifts in register tend to obscure the fact, as do the increasingly busy textures and faster-moving passages in the right-hand melody. In bar 9, the right-hand melody shifts up an octave, and the delicate and at times circuitous descent begins again, as Bach moves to a cadence on the dominant. Here's a performance of the first 16 bars. The second section of the Sarabande, a bit longer at 24 measures, begins with an only slightly busier texture and employs many of the characteristic rhythms heard in the first section. It reverts to the original tonic of G major quickly, but doesn't stay there long, touching on A minor and eventually tarrying on E minor for a few measures. He passes rather cleverly from there to C major with an unusual modulation, employing altered versions of the motives from the opening bars of the movement. As he moves to the final cadence on G near the end of the second section, he adds some faster-moving melodic passages in the right hand to guarantee that the movement ends with something of a flourish. 
Bach introduces a gavotte next, a sprightly duple-meter dance beginning with two-quarter-note upbeats so common to the style. It's a rather typical one in many respects, but features a well-known and completely delightful tune built on a clear and distinctive rhythmic pattern and a descending sequential repetition of the first three notes. Here is the first eight-bar section. You might have noticed that in the two upbeat notes before measure five, Bach seemed poised to play the first phrase all over again, but instead he modifies the original pattern, which had led to a dominant chord, to direct it toward an A major chord, which, although it might sound a little abrupt at first, is soon revealed to be the dominant of D major, which brings us around to that key to complete the first section. The second section, twice as long at 16 bars, naturally bears a strong resemblance to the first, but it's a bit busier as usual, with the left hand, and to a slightly lesser extent the right hand, carrying on with eighth note scale passages far more extensively than in the first section. Melodically, the second half begins with an inversion of the original three-note motive that began the piece in the right hand, adjusted for the new key, against a left-hand motive that also shows its influence. As is often the case, the major difference is the degree to which Bach wanders tonally. He almost immediately returns to tonic as usual, but a couple of bars later heads toward E minor before eventually moving to C major, all the while making use of motives from the first two bars of the movement. The last four bars, where he heads back to G major for the final cadence, make a clever reappropriation of the final four bars of the first section. Here is the second section of the movement. is next, and it's a brisk and attractive movement based on two key rhythmic ideas presented in the first and second measures. After two eighth note upbeats which leap up the tonic chord, we first encounter a dotted quarter followed by an eighth, leading into another dotted quarter followed by two sixteenths. Then, in the second measure, the familiar long, short, short, dactylic pattern, in this case in the form of a quarter followed by two eighths, is heard twice. Here's a simplified example of the first four-bar phrase, leaving out the ornamentation. Melodically, after the initial triadic leaps by the two pickup notes, we begin to move slowly up the scale from tonic. But already by the second half of measure two, the melody takes a more athletic turn and begins to bound down a series of triadic arpeggios, only to work its way back up at the end of the four-bar phrase. You probably noticed that the left hand at this point is relegated to playing relatively simple chordal arpeggios, more in the manner of late 18th-century Alberti bass patterns than the more typically contrapuntal approach we associate with Bach. Here's a recording of the entire ten-measure opening section. As you could hear, 
the second phrase, extended to six measures, begins as a variant of the first, but changes course somewhat as it sets up the modulation to the dominant. The second section of the bourrée, 20 measures long, begins with the same melodic material as the first, adjusted for the new key, and with the pickup notes inverted, and continues on in similar fashion throughout, with the repeated dactylic rhythms given particular emphasis. I'm not going to play the whole second section, but I do want to focus in on one small part of it, measures 5 through 8. At first glance, these measures seem unremarkable enough. At that point, Bach has moved to E minor, and the key is still in E minor four bars later. And the dactylic rhythmic figures outlining chordal patterns are still very much dominating the action. But in these four measures, Bach takes us on a little harmonic side trip with some unexpected chromatic activity in both right and left hands, which forces us to hear the now familiar melodic materials with a new perspective. Here's a simplified, slowed-down version of the four measures, because in real time, they go by very quickly. It's a relatively minor digression in the greater scheme of things, I suppose. Twelve bars later, after continuing to exploit the same familiar ideas, he cadences back on the original tonic of G major, and we're left with a general impression of little more than a jaunty little tune with a lot of repeated rhythms. But for those four bars, parenthetical though they may be, Bach gives us just a glimpse into his harmonic imagination, which may well have been unmatched in the late Baroque period. Allura is next, an unusual addition to the typical Baroque suite, which Bach employed only one other time in his partita in E major for violin. If the courant of this suite tilts toward the Italian style, the Allura is completely French. Often referred to as a slow gigue, the movement is in 6-4 and exhibits a number of dotted note rhythms, ties across strong beats, and a typical upbeat of an eighth followed by a quarter to start the piece, and fragments of imitation here and there as well. Despite these elements common to the style, the Lura still comes off as a bit quirky, especially in regard to its fluctuations in momentum, its sense of rushing ahead only to fall back to a much more leisurely pace. Here is the first section, only eight bars, but usually taken at a rather slow tempo. The second section, also eight bars in length, begins with the same melodic statement as the first in the key of the dominant, although the answering imitation is cut short this time. Subtle syncopations, deriving from ties across strong beats, are more in evidence in this section, and the left hand adds some new repeated dactylic rhythmic figures into the mix as the key works its way back to G major. The final movement is a gigue with a vengeance. It's in 12-16 time, with triplets and triplet-based figures powering through the entire movement. Typical of the gigue, the tune abounds with leaps, usually triadic in nature, in both sections. 
In the 24 measure first section, the soprano line introduces the melody and is imitated after three bars by the alto at the fifth, as the soprano continues with an equally rhythmic but neatly varied countersubject. In measure 7, the left hand enters with the subject in the tenor range, down an octave from the original. After the final entrance has played out, we hear a bit of an episode in which the key motives continue to be bounced back and forth between right and left hands, the texture now temporarily reduced back to two parts, as we begin to head toward D major. As the new key locks in, we expand again to three parts, the left hand now re-entering with the fugal subject a couple of octaves lower than the last time. Meanwhile, the upper two parts join together with slightly more relaxed motives from the countersubject, and in the last third of the section, after the last imitative entrance is completed, clever new syncopations are introduced in the upper two parts, challenging the dominance of the triplet motive for the first time, although the triplet motive rallies in the last few bars as we approach the final cadence on D major. Here is the first section. Not surprisingly, the second section begins on the dominant with the subject presented in the left hand in inversion. It's quickly imitated a fourth higher by the right hand, and once again we launch into a long modulatory episode, quoting vigorously from the original thematic material while touching upon various keys. By the middle of the section, we've accumulated an impressive density of texture, but in the last third of the section, the texture reduces down again temporarily to two parts, and something like the original fugue subject re-enters for the last time and plays itself out in a flurry of triplets and mild syncopations to the final cadence back in G major. It's a spirited, high-energy conclusion to a wonderful suite. The D minor and G major suites could hardly be more different, but between them show the incredible range of techniques, moods, and the richness of thematic invention which Bach lavished on this collection of dances. We'll revisit other suites from this collection in some future episodes. 
But for the next episode, we're going to take a look at a pair of box wedding cantatas.